Hi folks, a shout out this week to Sharon Pask, who did a review of the Take On Board podcast. Thanks, Sharon. She says, gender pay gap episode, very informative session with Emma Ray. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sharon, for taking the time to do a review. We love to get reviews here. And thanks to Emma for doing that episode. Second announcement for this week. This week we're hearing from Kari Hatch. And listen right through to the end of the episode where she shares resources because not only does she share some resources in the episode itself, but sent me a voice memo afterwards with some additional ones. So there's some gold in there. Radio, on with the show. Our presence there is going to reassure the public that they have a say. That museum has 50% of its revenue from government subsidies. So that's $15 million out of the $30 million in revenue. Uh, That's our money. That's public money. Hello and welcome to the Take On Board podcast, where we talk all things boards and governance. I'm your host, Halia Svensson. Being on a board can be interesting, valuable and exciting, yet it can also be really lonely, challenging and hard. So here at Take On Board, we'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you build your governance wisdom. We'll shine a light on how to navigate your way onto your first board or to build your board portfolio. We'll also help you to work through those challenges that keep you awake at night. Each week, I'll talk to women who have been there, done that, and together we'll discover what we need to take on board to be your best in the boardroom. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking to Carolyn Codsey about her journey to the boardroom and the importance of diversity. First, let me tell you about Caroline. Caroline is on the board of the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts and has previously been on the boards of Music and Drama Conservatory, Missing Children's Network, and I will pronounce this terribly, College International Marie de France. (laughs) A passionate and strategic leader, Carolyn has had a successful career in the corporate world of over 25 years, including the past decade in VP and SVP roles within major organisations. Caroline founded Women in Governance in 2010, a not-for-profit organisation with mission to encourage women to develop their leadership, advance their career and sit on boards. She dedicates her life to all matters relating to the access of women to executive roles and board positions in the corporate world in Canada, as well as women's equality rights everywhere in the world. You can see why I've invited her here to have this conversation. So welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Caroline. Well, thank you so much, Helia. It's a pleasure to be here. Fabulous to have you here. And as I had mentioned before we started recording, I've been a member of your Women in Governance Facebook group for quite some time now, and I recommend it to others. I'll make sure I put a link in the show notes for people because it is just a fantastic resource of information, inspiration. It's like being in this wonderful group of fabulous women who support and encourage each other. So thank you for providing that forum for people and for all of the work that you do. Thank you so much for the support. Caroline, before we dive into the conversation today, I would love to dig a little bit deeper about you. Can you tell me about your upbringing and what lessons you learned, what you got up to and what the leading influences were on what you thought and what you did? Well, I had a very 
unconventional, let's put it this way, upbringing. I was born in Beirut and I grew up through the Lebanese Civil War. At age 17, I left. I moved to Paris, no parents, no money. Uh, and I was pretty much sent into a swim or sink situation where I just decided to swim. And, you know, in retrospect, it seems to me so unreal what I went through, especially I would say when my children turned 17 and I thought, oh my God, I can't imagine you in a different continent without being even able to speak to your parents. So these were very formative years. I was very happy, to be honest. I was very worried about my parents, very worried about my home uh, in Lebanon. You know, it's not a time where we had any cell phones, any easy communication means. Today, something happens, people mark themselves safe on Facebook, people can text, can WhatsApp. There's a million ways of communications. But if you go back to the 1980s, mid-80s, it was very complicated. We did not even have normal phone lines, landlines in Lebanon. So to be able to just place a call, usually you'd make an appointment days or weeks ahead to say this day, that time, I will be able to call you. So these were years where at only age 17, I had to make important decisions, right? I had, first of all, to find a place where to live. So anybody who's lived in Paris knows it's a wonderful city, but it is one of the most complex cities in the world to find a home, to find a job, to be able to have any kind of normal life uh, as a student is, is quite demanding. I guess in my mind, no matter what the obstacles were going to be, I had no choice. So you never know how strong you are until you have no other choice. You know, I made the best of it. Honestly, hell yeah, I never self-pitied. I never felt this, you know, that this is so unjust, so unfair. Why me? I never cared about that. I just thought to myself, well, I'm safe. I'm healthy. I'm happy. And I, um, I found a job. I found a, you know, I was selling clothes in a little boutique in Paris. And I was making a lot of money because at the time, yeah, I, I guess it's the Phoenician blood in me, right? The Lebanese people are very well known for commerce. So if anybody would come in to maybe, you know, look at a coat or a jacket, they would leave with the whole ensemble. They'd have, you know, the purse that matches and the umbrella and the, the scarf. I had the time of my life these years. Um, and I learned so much. I didn't realize it back then, but I learned so much about overcoming fears, about taking risk, about courage, strength, uh, resilience. I think resilience is probably what has been the characteristic that allowed me to do most of what I've done because I've made mistakes, I've fallen down, but I've gotten back up and I've learned and I've done better. So definitely my childhood has a big impact and an influence on who I am today and also the choices that I've made both in my career and in my life mission, which is gender equality. Because when I was in Lebanon, I always felt, first of all, that those who were the least taken into account were the women. And second of all, because I deeply, deeply believe that there can be no peace without justice. I can completely see how that story has built some of that resilience. So you left Lebanon, did you say you were 16 or 17? Well, when I was 16, my mother and I moved to Paris. And then she left me there when I was 17. At yeah. first, she left me in a nun's home, which I escaped after three months. Yes. 
<laughs> also teaching you some skills of uh, flexibility and uh, choices and independence. <laughs> I thought I'd heard in there, I was about to check, you went there by yourself, but no, you went there with your mother and then she returned to Lebanon. When were you reunited with your family? I was reunited with my family a few years later at age uh, almost 23, 22 and a half. And it was quite amazing in the sense that that was the end of the Lebanese war. We did not know yet. It was in 1990. Mm. My parents left everything behind and uh, I mean, they sold everything that they had in Beirut. They just wanted out after 15 years of civil war and back and forth going to Canada, going to France and coming back to Lebanon every time, thinking that war had ended and every time it would start again. So they decided in 1990 that they were leaving Lebanon for good and moving to Canada. So that was my chance to be reunited with my family. And I took it. I got married very young in Paris because when I left that nun's home, what I didn't tell you, Halia, is when I was 17 and um, didn't want to be there also because they would close the gates at midnight and reopen at 6 a.m. So if you wanted to be in any time between midnight and 6 a.m., it wasn't possible. I actually moved in with my boyfriend, who was the same age as I. So at age 17, we both uh, rented a little um, maid's chamber in Paris with no bathroom. The bathroom was on the floor. And so we moved together to Montreal when we were both 22 and a half and uh, got reunited with my family. Oh, my goodness. What a... Yeah, I was going to say adventure. That often has that quite positive kind of connotation and it sounds like there was a lot of positive connotation in there for you as well, but also no doubt incredibly difficult. It's uh, just as a complete aside, I, I was in Beirut in I think it was 96 or 97 or maybe 98, somewhere around there, and you could still see the ravages of the civil war then, um, but also see the, the kind of... <laughs> It felt like if you just scratched the surface a little bit once the city rebuilt, uh, just such a beautiful place to be. I just remember seeing so many bullet holes in so many buildings around the city uh, and no one noticed it because people had all lived there and that was just how the city was. Uh, and when you come in from the outside, you can really see. So, yeah, I hope you've been back there to to enjoy the the beauty of Beirut in its all its glory. I have many times. I haven't been since 2010, though, 10 years ago. Uh, that was my last trip. And I keep a very fond memory of that trip because it was a period of time where it was truly peaceful and so wonderful. But now, obviously, with all that happened recently with a double explosion at the Beirut port, you know, things are a mess again. The pandemic has struck like it struck everywhere else, but it's also struck at a time where the economy was already on its, mm. I want to say on its knees, I want to say it's actually maybe on its stomach. Yeah. So it's, it's very difficult, very difficult. Oh, well, maybe holding, holding that view from 2010 might not be a bad thing then. <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm hanging on to. So I'd love to turn now to, to your journey to the boardroom. So I know you're on the, the board of the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts. Tell me about your journey to that boardroom. 
Well, that's a very out of the ordinary story. Uh, not that the ones before were uh, anything like that. The, the boards, you know, I'll, I'll, what I'll do is just because that one is so unique. Yes. I'll first tell you my, uh, you know, about my other boards really briefly without necessarily yes. going into the details. Yes. I think it's important for anyone who wants to sit on a board to build their network, mm -hmm. to build their skill sets, to think of what it is that they can bring to the board. Because traditionally, boards would be looking for CEOs. You know, if you've been a CEO, you're going to be a great board member. Obviously, that was a problem to bring more women to the boardroom because there are only in Canada and the US about five to six percent of female CEOs. So that makes it a very small group to get uh, board members from. So find out what you can give to the board. What are your top or your top skills? It could be marketing, it could be HR, it could be cybersecurity, it doesn't matter. But today, you don't necessarily have to be from that industry. Meaning if it's a mining company and they say, well, we can't find the women, well, you don't necessarily, although you do have tons of, of uh, engineers, female engineers out there, but it doesn't matter. You also need to have directors that come from very different backgrounds, very different perspectives. They have something else to bring to the boardroom table. Which brings me to the story about the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts. Anybody who's listening to this podcast, it is worth Googling the story because it's been widely discussed in both social media and traditional media because it's out of the ordinary. So in a nutshell, what happened there is that the chair of the board, Michel de la Chenelière, was in sort of conflict with the director general of the board, Nathalie Bonville, who had been there for 13 years, and she multiplied by two and three and four the number of visitors, the number of members, the floor space, the number of exhibitions, etc. So she is very well known in the museum world throughout the globe. Everybody knows this woman, respects her highly. Now, she may have her own personality, and she's a strong woman and an ambitious woman, and as often happens, comes across maybe as too bossy. So what the story says is that there have been some complaints, uh, workplace, you know, toxic workplace and workplace harassment. Obviously, this is very serious and needs to be addressed. Now, in this case, it seems that the chair of the board was not only wanting to get rid of Nathalie for many reasons, some may be personal, some may be um, related to the fact that she did not want to abide by all his rules. And it's very difficult, right, as a woman, when you're reporting to a man who wants you to, you know, get down on one knee, and that didn't happen. I won't get into the ton of details that surround that particular story, but long story short, she was fired from the museum, and that created around the world in all museums a, a, a shockwave. People mm -hmm. were really surprised that someone who was so competent, so admired, would just be dismissed so quickly and you know, in a very public mm -hmm. display. At that time, she reached out to me as the founder of Women in Governance to say, listen, I, you know, I don't think what happened to me is fair. And I am telling my story to anybody who wants to hear. 
So I listened very carefully. I'm not taking sides. I'm just being very factual. And I realized that there were a number of things that the board was doing in terms of their behavior relative to management, which, you know, was really not textbook. One of the things that we learn when we do governance training is that it's nose in, fingers out. Yes. That is basic. And here, clearly, it's not just the fingers that were in. It was the whole body. And they were too operational for the board. And so I thought I would be interested in learning more and, uh, and finding out what was going on. And, and, and I spoke to a lot of people who had previously been on the board or who had previously been employees of the museum. And I heard so many stories about poor governance on that board. So Nathalie shared with me that elections were coming up and there's 21 board members on that board. Following the big scandal, the chair of the board had to resign. So he resigned from his role, but he wanted to be elected uh, you know, as a trustee. And for that, the elections were coming up and four board members were up for renewal, including the chair of the board who did this dismissal, supported by the rest of the board, by the way. Ah. So a group decided to put together for a slate of four female candidates that would try to get elected on that board. Now, traditionally, there's about 50 people who show up to vote, 50 mm -hmm. members, and they just vote for, you know, renewing those people. There's, there's no question or doubt or other option. So we did a big campaign and we said, you know what, we want to be, you know, you have the right as a, as a member of the Museum of Fine Arts, there's 50,000 members, you have the right to choose your trustees, choose us. So the board decided to do a mailing to all those who had right of vote to say, these are the four candidates for renewal. These are the people you need to vote for. Mm -hmm. Yes, there are four other candidates. They did not even name us. There are four other candidates. They are not close to the museum. We don't recommend you vote for them. <gasps> so in other words, there's only four seats and only four candidates. Oh, my God. This is like a great book, Caroline. This is fantastic. Yes. What happened next? So for, for about, I would say, 10 days, we did a big campaign, sensitized people about what was going on and what our commitment was, if we were elected, what we were going to do. Well, hell yeah, it got so much traction that instead of the usual 50 members that come to vote, 1,480 people, oh. 1,480 people voted oh. and three yes. of our four female candidates slates were elected. Yes. On their side, they had four candidates who were up for renewal, three men and one woman. The woman was renewed and three of us took the other three seats. Ah, oh, so the chair was not elected either then. Exactly. And so 45 minutes after the vote, we were invited to our first virtual board meeting. Yes. Uh, let me tell you that uh, the atmosphere was quite tense. Unpleasant remarks were made uh, relative to the three of us. But listen, we were just, unbelievably delighted. We felt that justice was starting. We can't say that we, you know, we we're done. We're far from done. We are three board members and there's 18 more. 
And these 18 are all pro Michel de la Chenelière. So it's going to be quite a right, but at least our presence there is going to reassure the public that they have a say. That museum has 50% of its revenue from uh, government subsidies. Mm -hmm. So that's $15 million out of the $30 million in revenue. Uh, that's our money. That's public money. And mm -hmm. people are entitled to know who's on that board. And I'll tell you, not only who's on that board, of course, they know who's on that board, but I mean a say on yes. who is going to play a role on that board. And yes, there are women on that board. So it's not a matter of, is there gender equality? Although mm -hmm. there is an executive committee where I believe there's only one woman and that's where the major decisions are being made. So it still is an old boys club. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, there's a lack of diversity in terms of, uh, you know, cultural background or socioeconomic. Most of the board members of the Museum of Fine Arts come from very well-to-do families and are big donors. Yes. So there's also, you know, a matter of a conflict of interest there, right? Is, you know, is it okay to be a major donor, to be on the board? Is, is it okay to be uh, the wife of, the daughter of? It's, it's not optimal. No. It is not optimal. And so now the Minister of Culture has mandated a big research to understand exactly what's happening in every field mm -hmm. of the museum and every, you know, interviewing board members, but also interviewing employees and volunteers and understanding where uh, the issues have happened. And you have to keep in mind, Halia, that the law uh, that governs the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts is dated from the 1970s. Mm. So completely outdated, uh, completely disconnected with reality and uh, uh, doesn't even take into account all the good governance rules and best practices that have been implemented in the past few years, especially since 2002 with the SOX uh, regulations that, that have brought more rigorous governance to, to boards. Is this quite a recent thing? Very recent. It's been a couple of weeks only. Well, congratulations is the first part there. I'd love to dig a little bit more about this because, as you say, you've got, well, three of your ticket, I guess, for want of a better word, elected. Out of 21, it's been a fairly controversial and confrontational campaign to get elected. Like, even the election process for a board, often it's a nomination process, which is, you know, much more friendly in a way. It's a really large board. We know that culture in any organisation, and particularly in the boardroom, is vital for getting things done. What's going to be your approach now to building the collegiality that you need in the boardroom, yet at the same time not becoming part of that in a way? So interestingly enough, of the three of us, two of us kept a very strong stand in terms of our beliefs and what, what needs to change. And we did sense that the third one was already voting with the others. Mm -hmm. which kind of goes against what we're trying to do. So that was a bit of a disappointment, but I'm not going to get into too much detail there because I am bound by some confidentiality, obviously, that I've signed a non-disclosure agreement, but I can share my strategy because that's mine and mm -hmm. what I intend to do or hope to do. Of course, it's complicated in COVID days because it's not like when you uh, walk into a boardroom and try to build alliances mm -hmm. and make friends and speak to people you know, during the break or after the board meeting or, you know, take someone for coffee and try to 
you know, see things their way and have them see things your way. This is more difficult because we see each other in a Zoom and, um, you know, not convinced that any of these people really want to see me outside of those board meetings. Although I have to say the new board chair did reach out for us to meet and, uh, it's just that we're we're in lockdown right now, we're in a red zone, and uh, we're supposed to stay in our bubbles. So I offered a Zoom, which he declined. Um, we'll see. Listen, we'll see. And in a couple of weeks, things should get uh, you know more normal or whatever the new normal is going to be. And I hope to uh, you know spend time with him. He does. Hopefully, he does see the benefit mm-hmm. of having outsiders who really have the same goal as all the board members. It is the survival of the museum. I mean, we're, we're closed right now. We've had to close uh, the museum and it's very difficult like any other cultural institution. Everything is, is shut down. So we want to contribute to the mission of the museum. We want its growth. We want its international impact. We're all in this together. So I'm not, my goal is not to be confrontational. Mm. But my goal is certainly not to be part of this group think that I've seen. And uh, it's it's hard because you need to stand for what you believe in. And even if you hear some comments like, oh, well, there we go again, or oh, well, it begins because you're raising your hand and raising an issue and, and people think, oh, my God, we used to come to consensus so quickly. We used to find solutions very easily. Everybody used to agree. So my hope is that people see the fact that that is actually a problem, that you, if you really want to attain the most robust decision, if you really want to be innovative, you're going to have to listen to everyone, including people who are from all walks of life and see things very differently from you. And it is a plus, it is not a minus, it's it's just that. So, I mean, there's smart people on that board. They're well-to-do, they're influential, they're, for the most part, from some of Quebec's largest families and most, you know, uh, families that have contributed to our society and our economy. So Mm. they're educated. They're right now, obviously they're annoyed, but I can't imagine that they're not recognizing that, uh, you know, as we say in Latin, Vox Populi, you know, it's the democratic vote. Mm. And you need to listen to what people have to say. And at this point, the way I see things is that we're there, whether they like it or not. But what I'd like to happen is for them to like it. And get value from it because you are absolutely right. We, you know, in thinking about diversity, the value of diversity in any group decision making is that it's harder, is that you wrestle with it, is that you hear different perspectives and then come to a stronger decision. So it is harder and better. So all power to your arm then in that Um I might have to come back in, in six months or 12 months or something and just get a little update on how things are going. How, how long is your term, actually? Just out of interest, how long's the term? Three years. Three years, okay, which is great. It gives you a, a good chunk of time to build some of that momentum for change and stronger governance. Oh, my goodness, I've barely got off the first question and I knew this would happen. I knew it would happen, that we would we would end up down a beautiful garden path because that's been such a fabulous story for people to hear. Just briefly then, so you founded this Women in Governance group and you're an absolute powerhouse for equality and diversity in the boardroom. What are some of the lessons that you've learned around that, partly from... I mean, we've heard a number of them from the story you've just told, but what are some of the lessons you've learned and the tips you can share? First of all, 
it's from the lessons that I've learned that I decided even to found Women in Governance 10 years ago. We're celebrating our 10th anniversary. We actually have an international summit on November 13th, Friday, November the 13th, because we are wanting to uh, disrupt the status quo. You know, we want people to stop with that closed mindedness and, uh, and see beyond that. The, the mere fact that I've decided to found Women in Governance came from my own career. You know, mm -hmm. I spent 25 years in the corporate world here in Canada. I came here with a very large ambition and very clear goals of wanting to move up the ladder uh, one way or another. Didn't really have in mind some of the limitations that other women often have, like the lack of self-confidence or, uh, you know, that famous or infamous imposter syndrome. To me, I, you know, very elegantly bulldozered my way through. Mm. And uh, when I made it to major roles, you know, vice president, senior vice president, I looked around and find, found myself very lonely. Where are the women? In 2009, this is when I started researching it. I thought, okay, intuitively, I see that the women are not there. But what is the actual situation? And in 2009, it wasn't a topic that, that's as hot as it is today. And my network, I realized, was highly male-dominated. All the influential people around me were men, and I got along fine with them because I probably was not in a situation where I would uh, feel either inferior or feel this is not my place or, or worried about work-life balance, although I had children that I was raising on my own, I just found a way to make it all work. And uh, honestly, I think I probably gave them a nice gift because they're both, you know, they got involved in the community very young. They got to see me working very hard, yes. And I was absent, yes. But when I was home, we were spending a ton of quality time together. And that, that means the world to any teenager. They don't necessarily need the quantity, they need the quality. And so started doing some research to understand why that was the situation and realized that often women were not networking. And when they were networking, they weren't doing it properly. They were very hesitant to ask for something. So I started doing events and uh, fireside chats and panel discussions and uh, keynote speeches, et cetera, to share what I was seeing. And men were part of the conversation. And I think that was key to the success of women in governance because that was my network. So I'd say, listen, I need your help. I need to put together this event. And they wanted to help because yes, they've been part of the problem, but yes, they want to be part of the solution. And oftentimes they don't even know where to start and they feel like they would be overstepping their authority. This is a woman's thing. And I don't believe it's a woman's thing. I believe it's a society thing. This is better for not only the women, it's better for families, it's better for men, it's better for the economy, because there are ample research that demonstrate the positive impact of diversity on a company's financial performance, on its innovation, on its branding, on its employee engagement. So this is how I, I decided that women in governance needed to see the day. And I, I very quickly added other uh, components to it. Uh, the events was the first thing because I wanted to sensitize people and then added a mentoring program, which actually when COVID hit became a virtual mentoring program and it's now global. So even women in Australia, if they wanted to be mentees within the women in governance program, 
they could, which is something, you know, just six or seven months ago was impossible. So we try to find creative ways to um, not get uh, too bugged down by, uh, by COVID. And then added governance training. Uh, how do we uh, support women to be well-equipped on different topics? So whether it's the legal aspect, the financial aspect, a chairing a board, strategy. And we've recently added some really um, 2020 oh. topics, <laughs> like uh, cybersecurity, like diversity and inclusion, like sustainable, de um, sustainable development, et cetera. And then our probably what has become our, our, our call to fame is our parity certification that we've built with the pro bono support of McKinsey and Company, the largest consulting firm in the world. And we've got now Mercer and Willis Towers Watson supporting us in the evaluation of these organizations that want to close the gender gap in the workplace. Oh, it has been fabulous to have you here on the podcast here today, Caroline. Thank you so much. We've already referred to a couple of things that I will share in the show notes. So we'll definitely put your Facebook group and, and your event that's coming up, the summit. Is there any other resource that you would like to share with the Take On Board community? Well, uh, what I want to say for any woman who has the ambition of sitting on a board is that you need to be vocal about it. Nobody is just going to come and tap on your shoulder. So many women work hard, uh, are focused, are dedicated, and they hope that someone is going to notice. You mm. need to make it known. You need to also knock on doors. Which boards are of interest? Who are these board members? Do you Would you associate well with them? Reach out, make some phone calls, and get super ready. Think of your resume. Do I have every skill set? that will make it attractive for me to be on a board? Would I need to sharpen certain skills? Now is the time to work on it, not the day that you would want to be nominated. It could take you 10 years to reach a board that you are aspiring to be on, but you have to start somewhere and take the time to look at your resume, look at your, your, your achievements and talk about them. Nobody's going to amplify your voice as well as, you're, you know, you doing it for yourself. So I encourage all women out there to, um, you know, take on the boardroom. It is there. Uh, you are needed. They're saying that they can't find you. Prove them wrong. Show up. Oh, I love it. What a beautiful note to finish on. Thank you. Thank you so much for your, for being here today, for your courage, for your curiosity, for doing what you do. I look forward to maybe coming back in about 12 months and hearing a bit more about how that journey with the uh, Museum of Art has, has progressed as well and well done on taking that on as well. So thank you so much for being here with us um, at the Take On Board podcast today. Well, thank you, Halia. It was wonderful uh, meeting you virtually and uh, kudos to all your work with Take On Board and looking forward to staying connected. So that's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. Thank you for being part of the conversation. As you know, I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together and I think we're stronger together. So as always, I'd love it if you could share this podcast with someone you know and ask them to subscribe. Do you know someone in Canada that would be interested in all things governance? That would like to hear the voices of women in the boardroom? If so, could you share this podcast with them and ask them to subscribe? 
Thank you so much for being part of the Take On Board community and tuning next week for more tips and tricks on being your best in the boardroom.